my name is Jim Reynolds, and you are on the Christian Life Empowerment Podcast. Tonight, we have my good friend Don Lawrenson with us. On this podcast, we try to give normal, everyday people tools so that we can all be better missionaries. So far, we have mostly talked about being missionaries in our local communities, but today, we're going to talk about being a missionary and doing missionary work around the globe. Jesus told the disciples in Acts to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the whole world. Now, Don, you not only have been to several countries to start missionary projects, you were born in Africa to a missionary family. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what that must have been like? Growing up as a child in a missionary family is probably very influenced by where you are in the world. In the United States, when I lived here as a child, my life was all about getting up in the morning, getting ready, going to school, coming home at night, doing your homework, maybe a couple chores and going to bed. And that was your life day in and day out. In Africa, things were very, very different. Um, We usually did homeschool. And that really probably only took us about a half a day at best and the rest of the time we were free to do chores and explore so we did a lot of work in the garden and who, who taught you when you were homeschooling who was your who was your teacher so we actually had like a mail in home study program where lessons would come in the mail and you would fill them out and send them back in my mom was busy a lot of the time so you know occasionally my mom would tutor us but she was teaching a lot and my dad was teaching probably close to 14 hours a day so uh, often sometimes my older brothers would help me um, sometimes uh, some of the students at the college where my dad was teaching uh, would help um, just a smattering of people, you know, village, village life in Africa, there's not maybe hard assigned roles and people just kind of help out. As an example, um, if a child was misbehaving, any one of a number of the adults of the village might stop the child uh, and straighten him out. <laughs> uh, children were community property. Uh-huh. Uh, so you um, get spanked by anybody in town, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, uh, one point, at one point, my mom couldn't figure out why I wasn't eating my supper well. So she started asking questions about what I was doing during the day, and she found out that what I would do during the day is I would go around to people's houses and talk to them. And so when it was mealtime, they would just give me a bowl of food with everyone else. So I was getting probably four lunches, five lunches a day. So when supper came around, I wasn't all that hungry. Kind of a pudgy little guy, huh? So so my my mom uh, put a stop to that, and I had to eat my meals at home then. I just was still allowed to go and talk with them in their houses, but they weren't supposed to feed me, and I wasn't supposed to eat. Mm. Um, so children in Africa were pretty much community property, and... I used to spend long hours in the college workshop uh, talking to the college maintenance man. He was a student who was there working his way through his college program. And uh, 
he, I guess, had kind of a soft spot for kids, I suppose. So I would go in and I would sit in his workshop and talk to him for long hours. And, uh, you know, sometimes we would uh, climb trees and play in the trees. And sometimes we would go for walks. And it was a much outdoor-focused lifestyle than what I had when I came back to the United States. Mm. Um, Sounds like a blast. Oh, it was a great deal of fun. Uh, there was... Uh, always plenty to do uh, outside there was and then on the weekends uh, we would we were only about a mile from a game preserve and we would go around the game preserve and we would look for animals and they didn't really stay in the game preserve so they would come wander around our houses as well so it wasn't like there were 12 foot fences around the ga game game preserve <laughs> no it's just an area of ground where you weren't allowed to hunt animals and mm. they came and went at their pleasure so they drafts would come and they would knock down your clotheslines as they walked through them and uh, the hyenas would come down and um, we had lots of wild animals coming through I re you know on the other side of us about four miles down the road was a kind of a tourist trap called the Tanzanite and they had a little hotel and restaurant there with a little zoo and I don't know how many animals we delivered to that zoo, but it seems like we were taking them down uh, uh, something at least once a month. There's a snake there called a puff adder. And uh, for some reason, they thought that the best place to get warm was on our front doorstep. And so they would come and they would curl up on the con concrete there. And uh, they're a fairly mellow-tempered snake, but highly poisonous. And as long as you don't step on them, you're okay. But they're, they're kind of sitting on your doorstep. So we would <laughs> scoop them up and take them down to the zoo. And uh, as a result, we had free admission to the Tanzanite because we were always bringing them animals. Now, you were telling me one time about the hyenas and your dogs. So the hyenas, <clears throat> there was probably about 20 of them um, that lived. Oh, they probably were about... A mile away from the house and so at night they would come down and they would try and trick the dogs into coming out so they could attack the dogs and so they'd kind of make a circle around the house and and you'd hear them at night they go whoop and then the dogs would start barking and that would go on pretty much all night so you just kind of got used to that <laughs> So you didn't feel threatened at all with hyenas and giraffes? And... Oh, no. I mean, you know, we were, by African standards, a very well-to-do family. We had a house um, that was, you know, more or less built out of wood and plastered over, and uh, the hyenas were not at any risk of coming into your house. Uh, it would not have been good for a child to be out alone at night, but... Um, no, when you were in your house, you were perfectly safe. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's now. What What was your father's mission there? So you, you said your dad and your mom both taught. Yeah. So what happened is the first time that my dad served in Africa, he was working as a health educator at a little hospital at Harry. And they had a program where they were teaching people to go out and do health work in the community. So it was about a one-year course where they would learn public health and they would learn some basic skills. And they were working as, you know, a lot as hospital support staff. They would go out into the surrounding communities and do home visits. Um, what happened is they decided to move that 
program uh, to a college setting, and they also had a seminary uh, at Ikizu, and they decided to move the seminary to Ikizu to Arusha. So they took both of those programs and moved them to Arusha together. So the idea was that for their pastoral training, um, students would come in, they would earn a degree uh, as a pastor, but they would also receive a degree in village health education. Mm. And so my dad was running the health education program for that college. And a lot of what my mom was teaching there, my mom had a, a bachelor's in pipe organ, uh, and she had been a concert master for several um, orchestras, and so she was teaching mostly music and English and those kind of things as elective courses. Hmm. So. Interesting. So, so then you you guys moved back to the United States. Yeah. So we moved back to the states when I was about uh, eight years old. Uh, we took a little brief little tour through Europe, and my my dad's family lived in Canada. So uh, we spent, I don't know, maybe a couple months up there, uh, and then we moved down to Loma Linda. He wanted to, to uh, take a, a doctoral program, and so we lived in Loma Linda on the Loma Linda campus for, oh, I guess about four or five years, probably. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you grew up, and, and then what career path did you end up taking? You, you became a nurse, right? Yeah. Um, so I had a I had a scholarship program uh, to go to college on, and uh, I saw I needed to figure out you know something to do in college that would make me a living before all my scholarships ran out. And I really, what I really wanted to do was no longer really an option to me. So I went into to nursing school because I thought that would be a good broad based program where there was a lot of different fields you could work in and a lot of different shifts that you could work. So that if I ever decided I wanted to go back to school, that it would be easier to do. Mm. So I went into nursing school. And uh, then I never really did figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I just <laughs> continued nursing. Just stayed, yeah. just stayed doing nursing. Well, you did a lot more than nursing, though, right? I mean, you started doing missionary work here in the United States. Matter of fact, you and I are part of a church plant up in Oregon City called Hills and Valleys Adventist Church. So tell me, what are some of the differences or similarities of doing mission work here in the United States compared to being over living in Africa and doing missionary work in Africa? Uh, well, I think that missionary work in the United States is not so different from missionary work overseas. Um, it's just you have to fit your projects to the culture of the country you're working in. And other than that, it's not so wildly different. Um, you know, a lot of what people traditionally do in overseas mission projects is they do medical work or they do education work uh, or they do disaster relief programs or food relief programs or they do building projects. Um, we do a lot of the same thing over here as far as missions go. You just, you kind of fit it into the context of the country and what the needs are. You know, if we were going to do a program in downtown Portland, it would look different than a program that we might do uh, out in, say, rural Clackamas County. Um, mostly mission project is about trying to figure out what the needs are in your community uh, and how you can help to address those needs.
Um, that's usually best accomplished by community connections. If you can find people in the community who kind of know what the needs are and kind of attach yourselves um, to them in some degree to build a program, then you, you probably have a good chance of finding the people who have needs and meeting those needs. So a lot of it is just kind of keeping your eyes open for where where people need something they don't have that you have the ability to fill. Yeah, no, that, that, I, I think that's that's exactly right. And, and that's what we look for everywhere we go. Now, you and I have done some work in, in India. So you have gone back to the mission fields, the overseas missions. And um, and you kind of started a program. And, and, and as you're talking to me today, I'm kind of seeing where that came from a little bit. Because the program that, that you started in India, um, the medical program that we've worked on together, but you came up with the, the structure of, of this medical program. And you were talking about a little bit about what your father was doing in Africa. And boy, I guess that sounds kind of kind of like what you started here or started in India yeah it's very similar you know some of the first times I can remember um, that this kind of a program was tried out Dr. Kellogg was a big big promoter of philanthropy causes and he was always uh, wanting to do lots of work. You now know. that's Dr. Kellogg from a couple hundred years ago, right? Is yeah, that the Kellogg you're talking about? Yeah, or about a hundred years ago. The Kelloggs mm -hmm. are famous for Kellogg cornflakes right. and for making vegetarian food and they had a, a very huge state-of-the-art hospital that was one of the most famous hospitals of its time back in Battle Creek, Michigan. That would have been around uh, 1860 roughly. So that was an ancestor of yours, right? Am I yeah. correct in that? Yeah. Um, one of the things that they decided to do with that program is they had a very wealthy patient from the Chicago area who came to their hospital and got a lot better and so he wanted to make this available to other people in his community so that he actually paid out of his pocket for them to send a nurse to downtown Chicago to go around the poor areas of Chicago and provide medical help and training to people there. So really, in, in essence, maybe one of the one of the nation's first public health nurses, or first home health nurses, uh, was paid for by this wealthy man in Chicago to go do public health on the streets of Chicago. This program was replicated again in San Francisco and again in Australia. Uh, so not what what we are doing is not particularly new. It just went out of vogue for a while. It used to be that healthcare was always provided in people's homes. When you got sick, the doctor came out to your house and you had a nurse who stayed there with your house and took care of you. Around the First World War, healthcare became pretty industrialized and everyone would go into hospitals and get care there. But that wasn't the way things used to be. And back around the 1980s or so, when it became too expensive to keep everybody in the hospital, we started doing home health again in this country. Mm. And so, a lot of what we're doing is not not anything new. It's it's just bringing back a program that was already in use quite a bit. So what what we've done in India is we've simply done, like you said, much the same program that happened in Africa, much the same program that was being tried before in San Francisco and Australia and Chicago, to just send health workers out in the community to talk to people about public health, how to do first aid 
how to uh, you know have a proper diet, how to uh, keep yourself from getting sick by washing your hands and practicing good hygiene, and just basic principles of healthful living that people in disadvantaged communities don't always get the advantage of. So nothing really new, it's just pulling back in programs that were successful in the past that kind of went out of vogue for a while. Yeah. So now you have this model of medical missionary work that you dug up from the past and you've put it to good use in India and now you've taken it to the Philippines where we have hired a woman named Nelia Gerardo who has a master's in public health and she is now training people in churches around the Philippines to do the same medical missionary work. Yeah. Yeah, they were the Philippines was a really great group of people to work with. People in India have been really great to work with too. A lot of, a, a, you know, a lot of training is actually just opening people's eyes to possibilities of what they can do with tools they've already got in their hands. You know, yeah. the people in the in the Philippines were already a very well qualified group. Most of them uh, had a good background and. Um, education um, and a lot of them had you know a decent background in health they just hadn't ever really thought about how they could use that as a ministry tool mm -hmm. and they just needed a few examples of how that might be done and like most people um, if they have the tools and they know how to use the tools they'll figure out pretty quickly a way to put the tools to good use no so, no well, and going back to what you were saying about understanding the culture and, and what the needs are of the culture, um, I think we're, we're, what, what you're doing in India and the Philippines is, is sending these people, these local people, into their own villages that speak the language, that know the culture, and, mm -hmm. and can tell a lot better than us what is needed. I remember that first trip we took to India on a medical missionary trip, and we did that that uh, well, we did that health thing in in that one village, right? And I remember taking them all these bottles in order to they, they were bottles that were the right kind of bottles in order to 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 make clean water. Mm -hmm. And so I took all the, all the PET plastic. That's what it is. PET plastic. And so you take these and, the, and you sh put water in them. You shake them up. You put them on the roof for, I think it is, 6 to 12 hours. And the water's clean or, or fairly clean. Um, so it solar pasteurizes the water. So we took these bottles. We ex explained solar pasteurization. Everybody just says yes, nodded their head and smiled. Left. Nobody took a single bottle. Yeah. And, and and that's one of the times that I realized that boy we got to have somebody I don't know what what these people really need and how they're going to utilize um, what they need but with the people there it, you can find that out better the people that live in the villages the people that work there that know the languages so so yeah I, I appreciate that that is how you do missionary work everywhere what do you find is is um some of the most challenging parts of missionary work, not just here in the United States, it has its own separate sets of, of challenges. Uh, but in, when you're in the mission field in other countries, say I wanted to go to another country, I wanted to do mission work somewhere, I felt God calling me to, to go across the sea to some country to do some mission work. What are some of the challenges I'm going to be facing as I, as I land in that country? 
Well, I think the biggest part to any successful mission project is good research. Uh, and research can take lots of forms. That can be reading about the country before you go over, studying about the country, talking to people who have been in the country to see what their experiences were, listening, maybe even watching travelogues about the country. And then when you get over to the country itself, again, most of what you're doing is research, talking to people, listening to people, watching people. You know, one of the ways that education is changing in right now is that before the age of computers, when computers could store everything, education was all about filling people's heads with knowledge of lots of facts. Well, nowadays, all those facts are available to you on Google. So the real issue is not the fact that you don't have enough facts. It's what to do with the facts, how to find the facts that you need and use them appropriately. And so that's one of the ways that education is changing. So a lot of how we used to do missions was to get try and get a lot of facts, you know, and then try and figure out what to do with those facts. And much of what we're doing is still the same thing, only now the facts are all there. It's a matter of trying to figure out how to get the facts that are important for us to use and how to make a program to use those facts. So if I sit down with you in your house and I start talking to you about something that's important to me, the only part of what you'll remember is where somehow we had a chance interaction between what was important to you and what was important to me. And so mm. most of my time will be wasted. Mm -hmm. If I come into your house and I find out what is important to you, and then we talk about what is important to you, almost everything that I say is going to be important to you. Mm. And so a lot of what you're doing in mission work is sitting down with people and finding out what is important to them. And wherever you have an opportunity where you have something to share on something that's important to them, that's what you do. Mm. That's very good insight, especially when you're dealing with other cultures and and trying to figure out these cultures. Because if you go in with your own thoughts, and you always do, you always go in with your own thoughts of this is how things should be. And and if you stick to that and aren't willing to be flexible, boy, I, and I see that all the time in the mission fields. People go over there, they know what they want to do, they know what they want to get accomplished, and they leave and, and really not much has been accomplished. Yeah, it's a tricky part because because the way we do education, people are coming in and they're expecting they're going to learn from you all these different things. Um, but they don't really know exactly what they're going to learn. They just hope they're going to learn something useful. So when you come in and you ask them what's most important to them, it takes them a while to switch gears. They don't automatically switch from, oh, I actually need to think about what it is that I want to accomplish here. Mm. And that takes them a little bit of time. So it is a little awkward when you first go in and getting people to open up and share with you what what they really have questions about. And then it's a little awkward because some of the things that they ask you questions about, you don't have any answers for. Mm. Yeah. And so Hate that. <laughs> and so then it's a lot about talking to them about okay, so how do we create some kind of a 
a project that will help you answer your questions because I don't have the answer. So if we're going to find an answer, how do we how do we find the answers to this problem together? So what I hear you saying is when you go into the mission fields, go in with an open mind. Go in to listen. Yeah, I mean, for example, when we were in Africa um, and you had a pipe break, you didn't have um, all the kind of things that I was using when I was doing maintenance in the United States to fix pipes, you know, so you have this piece of PVC and you put some, you clean it off, and you put some primer on there, and you put some glue in there, and you push the joints together, and you hold them till they set, and that's how you fix a pipe. Or if you didn't have that, maybe you have a piece of rubber that you have a couple little iron bands around it, and you stick the rubber on, and you tighten down the iron bands, and that holds your patch in place, and that's how you fix the pipe. You didn't have that in Africa, so um, what you actually ended up usually doing to fix pipes in Africa is you would take a little piece of wood and you would whittle it down to about the size of the hole in the pipe and you would take a hammer and you would pound that plug into the pipe and that's how you fix the pipe. So <laughs> <laughs> That just kept it from leaking. That didn't help it get the water anywhere else. <laughs> well, yeah. So you had to put the plug in hard enough so that when you turned the water back on, the plug would stay in the pipe. So... Um, so different way of thinking <laughs> a lot of a lot of doing missions is about figuring out ways to solve problems with the tools that you have available on the ground and your your solutions may not be the best possible solutions you just have to come up with a solution that works yeah <laughs> you know, you were talking about these bottles and, and the fact that, yeah, they probably would have worked, but it wasn't something that the people were going to use, therefore it wasn't really a workable solution. So you got to figure out what are the people actually going to use to do this. Yeah. You know. uh, it's like, it's like uh, if we were to go over to uh, India and we wanted to solve, uh, you know, a problem with... B vitamin deficiency. You can't just tell people to go to the store and buy a B vitamin supplement because they can't afford it. So they're not going to go to the store and buy B vitamins. So you've got to figure out what they normally eat in their diet that's high in B vitamins. So. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you have to be very creative in the mission fields. And that's one thing I can attest to. And, and I know every time that, that we go over, things never go as we plan them to go. There's always something that, that goes awry. And so you've always got to be able to think on your feet and, and not get upset when things go don't go as they should. And that would be my first advice to somebody going over is to is to know that things are not going to go the way you plan for them to go. It's just not going to happen. And if you know that right off front, then ah, you can, you know, you can keep from being frustrated because I see some of that in the in the mission field with other people from the United States is they'll they'll get a little bit frustrated that things aren't going. And, and I got to tell you, there's been times when I've been frustrated. <laughs> Don's looking at me and laughing right now because he's been there when I've done it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, after you've gone over a few times, you realize things are not going to go as planned. You got to be ready for the unexpected and just know 
it's coming. It's like 100% that you're going to get something you didn't even expect at all. But, you know, what is what are some of the best things that happen when you're in overseas mission? I mean, what do you appreciate most when you go over and, and you're able to, to help somebody? You're able to, to let somebody see something they've never seen before? I mean, what is your... Well, I mean, in that aspect, it's not so much different than a mission project that you're doing here in your own community. What's discouraging about missions is when you spend a lot of time and effort and you walk away and you feel like nobody's life is really better because of what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's discouraging. And what always gives you encouragement is when you can go in and somebody sees what you're doing and the lights come on that this will make their life better mm -hmm. and they take mm -hmm. this and they tell you about how happy they are that their life is better because of what happened that's what really gives you the energy to keep going I mean it you know if you were to go out and your job was to dig a hole every day and then the next day after somebody came and filled it back in, you'd be pretty discouraged. Your job is just kind of pointless. But if you do something at the end of the day, you can see that somebody's life is better because of the work you're doing. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, going overseas has an advantage in that at least when you go overseas even if nobody's life got better you had the advantage of going into a new situation and seeing something new and seeing something new is always you know somewhat exciting but what really makes a mission trip worth it um, is when you can see that people's lives are better you know to give you an example that first trip that we took over to India in uh, 2013 I think it was mm -hmm. there was a health worker there that was part of our training program who was in really poor health when she came into the training program she was very thin and very anemic and very low on energy and doing very poorly and her family's health was very poor too a year later came back looking at pictures and I wondered what happened to this girl because I didn't see her with the rest of the group and I'm looking through the pictures and I finally come across a picture and I see this is the same facial structure this has got to be the same girl but I don't recognize her she's healthy she's vibrant she's full of energy she's full of confidence her family is thriving and you say okay now this is worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I know the, the, the woman you're talking about in Cutapon. And, and, you know, not only her, but like you say, her family, because she had a, a young girl that we thought was two, two or three years old, and the girl was three or four years old. I mean, she was just yeah. so far. And, and I've had the same thing where, where I've sent donors a picture and then uh, sent them a picture the, the next year. And it was like... It was like two different women. It was just amazing because not only when they learn. So, so explain a little bit to what we, what, 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 what you train them to do. What we do in India. What is, 
what are we doing over there with these these ladies that we train? Yeah, I mean, it's not so much different than teaching them what would be part of a basic health course in school. So, you know, oftentimes in sixth grade or tenth grade, this is built into the curriculum where we teach a health class and we talk to people about proper nutrition and proper hygiene and proper exercise patterns and how to keep your body healthy and how to avoid disease um, and we're this is the basic thing that we're teaching people and then what we build onto that is we build okay so now these are some ways that you can help share this information with people so essentially we're teaching them courses a little bit of courses in communication and education uh, and coaching um, so it's just very simple, basic public health knowledge, some simple uh, teaching, coaching methods, uh, basic first aid, and that's really what we're teaching. Yeah. Well, the other part of the medical missionary training that you brought into this program that I really appreciate is the tools that you've given these ladies to use. You've given them a, a blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope and, and a measuring tape, thermometer and a scale. And with the measuring tape and the scale, we, we check children and we give uh, child growth charts to the ladies. And so they can tell when the children are malnourished. And this is a huge problem, of course, in India. We found 60% of the children that we checked were malnourished. And so this is something that is unique, I believe to this program that you helped to develop. And from that, we've come up with something we call the Hydrobad mix, which is a high protein mix that could be one scoop with water or milk, and it can give the child the protein it needs for the day. And it's made out of very simple materials, nuts and, and wheat and different things that you can easily find in the area. So I appreciate these things immensely. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's very much like what we were talking about earlier the first part of a good mission project is research mm, um, mm -hmm. and even if you're on the ground you know we were talking about what it feels like to go to a different culture to do missions over there so people over there are not going to a different culture to do missions they're doing missions within their own culture like we do over here when mm -hmm. we you know go out and take blood pressures at Fred Meyer um, and so really what you're teaching them to do is to gather data for their research project to figure out what their community needs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you and I were going to start a business here in Gladstone, one of the first things we would do is find out whether or not Gladstone is a good place to start our business. Is there demand uh, in the area? And so it's very difficult to have a meaningful health program if you have no idea what the health of your community is. Yeah. And so if you're going to figure out what the health of your community is, you've got to gather data. And the simple way you do that is by figuring out what people's weights are, figuring out what people's vital signs are, figuring out what their diet looks like, figuring out what kind of hygiene practices they have. Once you know that, then you have some data with which you can actually build a program that's going to have some benefit. And let's say and we almost made this mistake in a couple of villages. Let's say that we walk into your village and we want to tell you that it's important for you to get clean water. So everybody has to boil their water because the water source is not clean. And then you find out, well, the government actually did just put in a water purification program in this village 
and a center where people could get clean water. Right. So what's the point in boiling your water? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and as I was saying before, the like the first time we went to India in 2013 to do a medical program, we found that 50 to 60% of the children that we checked had stunted growth. Yeah. It's it's a difficult problem in that in, in some communities there simply is hard to get enough calories into children, and then in some communities it's it's not so much that children don't have adequate calories, but that they're constantly sick and constantly having diarrhea and most of the calories they're consuming are going to fighting off disease. Either way, in either village, the best way to solve that program is to decrease the amount of disease because even if they have insufficient calories, you want to make sure that they can use every single calorie they have towards mm -hmm. building a healthy body and you really don't want disease slowing you down. Yeah. In the other situation, the calories are there, and once you get rid of the disease, they'll all develop normally. Yeah. So. No, and, and that is what you discovered on our first trip over there, which is pretty much what we built our, our program around, is that, that whole idea. Because I remember those two little, you know, I remember the conversation that brought that up, that what you just said right there, and it was after we went into a village, and these two 11-year-old children were both asking me for food. Yeah. And we didn't have any food. And I had to leave them there hungry. And, and it was just the worst feeling in the world. And, and it was that night that I asked you, what do we do? How do we feed all those kids? And you came up with that right there, which is what we have pretty much built this whole program around that is, has expanded to the point where we're, we're now going to be moving into, they, they want us to go into Africa with this program. We, we're in the Philippines. We've got a hundred, over a hundred people stipend and working um, with us in in India and so God has just really blessed um, some of this stuff and to me as far as a mission project but the biggest blessing I see like you say if you leave and you see that something's been done you see that you've made a difference in somebody's life and and I think that the, the program that you came up with is is really doing that and so that's just I mean praise God because it's, it's all about what God has done not what we're doing but man it's it's amazing when he uses you well, sometimes you have to play for the long term, huh? So, let's say that we're in this village and everybody's poor and there's not enough money for food. If everybody's sick all the time, nobody can work. That means nobody makes money. That means there'll never be enough food. And so, even if you can make people healthy enough that they can just work a little bit more and have a little bit more money so a little bit more food is available over time you will improve that economy to the point where it can take care of itself and mm. meet its own needs um, so sometimes people just need a little bit of an extra help to figure out how to maximize the resources they have uh, in order to make their lives a little bit different. Sometimes all people really need is a glimpse of hope. Uh, and sometimes you go into these villages and you talk to people and that's the real problem is they are just hopeless. They have no hope. Yeah. They are just dragging their feet one day to the next hoping that it all will end and they don't have to deal with it anymore yeah. because they just don't have any hope and sometimes that's all you really need is to just create a spark of hope 
and things will get better. Amen. Yeah. No, that's good. Hey, being part of an overseas mission is just an incredible experience to have. If you would ever like to take part in something like that, go to ultimatemission.net. That's ultimatemission.net, and we can we can help you find a way to experience an overseas mission. We can give you advice. We can we can answer your questions. Just go to the contact page and leave your information at ultimatemission.net. And hey, if you would like to be part of a mission here at home, and you live in the area of of Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and even if you don't, because we do things on on Zoom, and we can help you start a church in your area. We're starting a, a church, a little church plant called Hills and Valleys. And so if you go to hillsandvalleys.church, that's hillsandvalleys.church, you can see what we're doing in Oregon City and maybe become part of that. So that would be fantastic too. So hey, I hope that your mission work goes well wherever you're doing it, wherever you're going. I pray that God will bless you and keep you until the next time we talk. Thank you very much for joining us. God bless and Goodbye.